This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, the gossip columnist, the Taoiseach, and the 27-year-long affair. She was a fashion writer, social diarist, and columnist. He was Ireland's most controversial Taoiseach. Their affair was an open secret in society circles. But the rest of us were finally brought up to speed in 1999, when Terry Keane publicly revealed her 27-year affair with one Charles J. Hawhey. How long was the affair with Charlie Hawhey? Um, I met Charlie Hawhey about 27 years ago. What was it that attracted you to him? He was larger than life. He was very attractive. I mean, he is very attractive. Um, strong, clever, entertaining, amusing, irreverent. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Irish independent columnist John Downing to refresh our minds of that very controversial affair. John Downing, Charlie Hawhey, three-time Taoiseach, one of the great divisive figures of of the Irish history of the last century. Terry Keane, a, a gossip columnist with several newspapers, uh, including of, of this parish, they were both very prominent figures. Uh, how did they come to meet? They met in January 1972 at Club Elizabeth's nightclub in Leeson Street in Dublin. It was at the time uh, the late night place for politicians and uh, journalists and the uh, people attached to showbiz and business and all the rest of that to gather for a late night drink and dance. Yeah, and they were both very much, obviously, you know, pillars of society, but but mixed in kind of the same high society circles. Absolutely. Um, uh, Terry Keane was, uh, basically, she was a fashion journalist at one stage with the Irish Times, later the Irish Press, the Sunday Independent, and so on. But in January 1972, Charlie Hawhey, who had been Minister for Justice, Minister for Agriculture, Minister for Finance, he had been ignominiously driven out of frontline politics. He was languishing on the back benches. There was the 1970 arms trial about alleged illegal import of arms for use in the north. And uh, he, he was acquitted, but he was in exile and basically kind of at a loose end. Yeah, these are the, the, the Hawhey's wilderness years uh, as Absolutely. such before he's, he's, he's brought back uh, to, to, to frontline line politics. And essentially, 
the, the two of them, they, they embarked upon an affair. Yes, which uh, there's very amusing account of, uh, you know, how she, how she remembered their meeting. This is from uh, Ryle Dwyer's book, uh, Short Fellow. They were both in company of other people. She, uh, who could be quite outrageous, had very sharp tongue, very witty, very funny, was generally slagging him and, and teasing him. And he, got, he took the hump and said, look, I, I don't have to put up with this. I'm going home. So then she said, don't go, I'll dance with you instead. So that was the start. Um, and it was to last. That was January 1972. It ended rather calamitously in, Mar- in May 1999, 27 and a half years. And, you know, hard to dismiss it as an affair. It was, in fact, a relationship. We met actually at a at a, um, a gathering in a nightclub. It was a sort of a dinner party. We'd all been at drinks in a, in a friend's house, and we all moved on to this uh, nightclub for dinner. And uh, we sort of knew each other vaguely. That was really it. And was it instant attraction that night, or did you dance together? Or talk uh, well, together? well, it was instant attraction. I didn't particularly like him before that. I was sort of fairly indifferent to him, really. Um, but that night, because one, I think that often happens that you don't think about somebody until you're really sort of face to face, as we were that night, and started talking and we danced together and um, there, were, there was a very strong mutual attraction. Yeah, how would one one describe it? I mean, you you have the the, the kind of the French notion of the the mistress, uh, who you know politicians and business figures in France this would would be quite a, a frequent occurrence. But in Ireland, obviously, it, it's hard to really define or, or compare this to anything we've had before. Well, certainly, it wouldn't have been as much talked about and certainly not in those times as as it would be sort of common knowledge in France. Uh, he was a Francophile, of course, and loved all things French. And yes, it would have been usual or not unusual, let's say, for a f- senior French politician to have a very orthodox home life, wife, children, etc. And then a, a sidebar relationship with a glamorous woman. He was a great man to compartmentalize his life. Uh, He had been married for over 20 years at that stage and uh, he he had a number of children, uh, but he kept the two separate. As as time goes on, Charlie Hawhey emerges from this this wilderness period. He returns to to frontline politics, ultimately takes over as as Fianna Fáil leader, uh, becomes Taoiseach. And, And within that political career, there are a number of occasions where you'd say moral issues come to the fore, which would appear to contradict Charles Hawhey's affair that he is having. Can we we go through some of those? Yeah, I mean... Let me go through the the contraception issue when when he was Minister for Health. When when this became, uh, among the the fallout from uh, her revelations about the affair in May 1999, was accusations that Charles Hawhey was a hypocrite because publicly he advocated family life. You mentioned contraception. Uh, in the late 1979 on, he was Minister for Health and he brought through uh, contraceptive legislation, which in theory meant if you wanted a packet of condoms, you had to have a doctor's pre- 
prescription and a marriage and a marriage cert. And he described it at the time as an Irish solution to an Irish problem. He was leader of the opposition in 1986, in June 1986, when uh, Garrett Fitzgerald ran a divorce referendum, which looked very likely to be passed. Uh, but Fianna Fáil's uh, theoretical uh, neutrality in that on that issue was in practice uh, borne out by their campaigning and helping anti-divorce campaigners. And Charles Hawhey, close to the polling day, made a long and uh, famous statement about the need for family values and upholding family values, which, of course, later prompted people to ask, well, who's the values of which family, Mr. Hawhey? Yeah, he, he speaks at that time about an unshakable belief in the importance of having the family as a basic unit of society. My experience of life tells me this is the best way in which we organise a society. He goes on to say the family is an anchor for the individual, a haven of security and support. I give that as my purely personal view. Now, you would, you could argue that that was a, a, ba- a poorly structured referendum, that the G- Gareth Fitzgerald's government didn't deal with it, but it certainly wasn't helped by the fact that the leader of the opposition the leader of the largest party in the country was coming out personally opposing it. Did it delay divorce coming to Ireland for 10 years? It did, yes. So what seemed unthinkable a fortnight ago, if pollsters and many observers were to be believed, has now happened. The divorce proposals brought forward by the government with the one dissenting voice, that of Paddy Cooney, have been roundly defeated. It's almost a landslide. We went from, that was June 1986, it was beaten by a margin of two to one, so I suppose you couldn't hang it all on Charlie, to say the least. There, there was a huge gap about property succession and all of that, but it took us until November 1995 before we got a uh, divorce uh, referendum very narrowly passed. What about how widely known this affair was. It wasn't exactly the most discreet uh, of relationships, was it? It was very widely known uh, all over. I mean, I started in local journalism in in the early 1980s and I was told pretty promptly that that, uh, that this was uh, Charlie Hawhey's uh, situation, married man with an unorthodox liaison with another woman. Uh, It was the the funny end of the British Secret Service tried very hard. There's a recent book about that. Uh, They tried very hard to try and use it as a smear. And they tried to use it particularly to stop him becoming Taoiseach. They They had a theory that if Harold Wilson... Uh, was Prime Minister and Charlie Hawhey was Taoiseach, that uh, things would go very wrong for the United Kingdom and the Union and and Northern Ireland. Um, It was well known all over uh, Dublin, Chatterati, journalism, uh, politicians, anybody who uh, went around in in the fashionable watering holes, uh, discos, nightclubs, etc. Very well known fact of God. And at the same time, he was actually being referenced in Terry Keane's own columns. Yes, uh, she referred to him consistently as Sweetie, this mysterious figure in her life. There were also many references to Charles Hawhey 
by name and there were references to him in the office of Taoiseach. But that was, she was, after all, writing a gossip column. So that, that would be par for the course. But there were these uh, oblique uh, and barely, barely, very thinly veiled references to Sweetie. Yeah, and, and on occasion, she also was was very defensive of him, but ostensibly on a, on a political level. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I vividly remember her in uh, the summer of 1986 going on RTE radio, a morning show that was presented by Pat Kenny, and she castigated several political journalists and said they had a terrible down on Charlie Hawhey and that they were basically incompetent and they got pretty much everything wrong. This was at a time when she was writing, uh, I think powder blue is the colour for 1986. What about the late 90s then? Now, Hawhey goes out of power uh, early 90s, the, 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 some part of his past uh, comes back to, to haunt him uh, very famously and Throughout that decade, then, more and more detail about his life comes out and his personal finances, 1.3 million euros from, from Ben Dunn. And we have we go into the, the period of, of tribunals. In the late 90s, their relationship sours. Absolutely. We go particularly to May 1999. She uh, had a, a deal for, for 60,000 uh, pounds, Irish pounds, with the Sunday Times to uh, write a kiss and tell memoir as we as we always term these things and to uh, launch that she was going to go on the biggest uh, TV show in, in the uh, Irish firmament at the time and uh, g- give the whole thing a, a, a kick on the Late Late Show with Gay Byrne it was uh, it had a, an additional sort of cachet because it was uh, among the last programmes that Gay Byrne actually did Yeah second last show it was the last show is remembered for it being his his farewell his and song, the yeah. U2 coming on and giving him a Harley Davidson and, and, and so on but th- this was, was one of Gabo's great interviews that people are still remember yes it was the 13th of May 1999 she met Charlie Hawhey some days before at uh, Le Coq a restaurant on Pembroke Road about a 10 minute walk from Leinster House where they had many many uh, uh, trysts and, and meetings over over 27 years and she told him what she was doing he asked her not to do do it but she went ahead anyway and that was the last occasion that they spoke I think in or about from memory in or, in or about 10th of May 1999 Yeah and also at that time, he, he seemed to be trying to put his own affairs in order by, by returning gifts and mementos that she had given to him over the years. Yes, there, there are sort of two sides of justification as to why, why this happened. Uh, he, he was in very deep water with the tribunal. There had been the McCracken Tribunal and that was immediately followed by the Moriarty Tribunal. They would certainly be looking at some of his crazy spending patterns, and in fact they did, because Le Cocardie, the venue for the breakup, the venue for so many other uh, encounters, rendezvous over the years, uh, it, it emerged from tribunal inquiries that he spent €15,000 there at one stage. He was just sworn in when his lawyer interrupted, arguing that his client's dealings with AIB Bank were not part of the tribunal's investigation into the money trail and that his right to privacy was greater than the public's right to know. 
The chairman disagreed and Charles Hawhey's massive overdrafts from over a quarter of a century ago were laid before him, begging his explanation. He, so he certainly was trying to, he, he was conscious that such investigations were going to come and that he should try and tidy up the record as much as possible. He was also, he was facing at that stage an imminent criminal trial, uh, the second of his long career, the other being in 1970 over arms importation. So he was, he was certainly trying to prepare lots of things come out in cross-examination in witness boxes and so on. And the third issue he had was he had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. So he wasn't at all sure wh- how many more years he could look forward to. Yeah, and uh, Terry was part of this lifestyle that, that was revealed to to people. Uh, tell us about Charvet shirts and Char- trips to Paris. And so Charvet on. shirts, yeah. There were certainly, there were many, many trips to Paris. They used to go to London, but they got quite leery. They disliked London because they were conscious of this... Uh, media efforts to try and, and smear and you use the rela- relationship. So they far preferred Paris, uh, sometimes Germany, sometimes the south of France. The Charvet shirts were outrageous. This shirt maker in Paris near his favorite hotel, which is the Hotel Meurice, where I once had the, the privilege of having dinner with him or being among a company of people who had dinner there. But around the corner, shirts, thousands of pounds. She maintained, she introduced him to Charvet, the shirt maker. But there was, yeah, a whopping bill came out in in the uh, uh, tribunal investigations as well for Charvet shirts. Of all the things Charles J. Hawhey has been accused of, being a slave to fashion hasn't been one of them, until today perhaps. The tribunal revealed he spent thousands of pounds on French shirts made by one of the most exclusive makers. According to the company, they supply shirts of almost unbelievable elegance to the most demanding clientele in the world. Walking into their Paris shop is, they claim, an intoxicating experience. In the wake of this Late Late Show revelation, what was the public reaction? Because as you say... Everybody in certain circles knew all about it. Did, did the wider public have any notion of this? The wider public very, very definitely didn't really know. Uh, some people, there, were, there was a rumour, there was a rumour for every day of, the, of, the, of Hahi's public life of all sorts, which did include that he was a bit of a boyo when it came to women. But the actual liaison, the details of it, the longevity of it, all that sort of stuff, no. The wider public did not know it. So it was quite a shocker. At the same time, there's also two families. How did they receive this news at the time? Well, it was very difficult for them. I, I actually had had the privilege of, of covering uh, Maureen Hawhey's uh, funeral in recent years. And uh, it was a very sad occasion, but she came across as as a very strong person, uniquely the daughter of a Taoiseach, Sean Lamass, and the husband of a Taoiseach. So um, it was very, very difficult for her. Uh, We're we're told that she, she told him when they discussed it, she, they, they got, got through discussions about it. And then she said, right, We'll leave it there. So his family, his sons and daughter, insist they never knew of it. And uh, when challenged on that, uh, such a length of time, uh, 
for example, Terry Keane visited his island home uh, adjacent to the Blasket Islands on Inishvika Lawn, uh, and of course, so did his wife. And there were lots of meetings in Kerry where the uh, Hahi family were very well known. So there were lots of meetings between Terry Keane and Charlie Hahi in Kerry and so on. So sometimes people said, come on, how could you not know to the Hahi family? And they just insist, look, there was a rumour and there were rumours about rumours about rumours about our da. And we just learned to have the salt cellar close at hand and take it all with a large grain of salt. Tell us about Terry Keane, her, her background and her entry into journalism. Yeah, she was she was quite a character. I knew I knew journalist in in Brussels, a guy called John Palmer, who knew her as as a young woman. She was the daughter of a, an Irish couple, uh, but who lived in England for a long period. Uh, Terry O'Donnell originally, her father was a doctor. And uh, she was born in Surrey. She moved uh, to, to Ireland to study medicine, but she quickly abandoned medical studies and gravitated towards uh, fashion journalism. She uh, she was glamorous. She was very well, um, very well liked. Um, quite a socialite, I suppose was the phrase at the time, described by uh, longtime friends as one of the kindest people you could ever meet, who was also capable of being utterly outrageous. And and she was married to somebody quite prominent as well. She was married to an up-and-coming young barrister called Ronan Keane. Ronan Keane went on to be a High Court judge, a Supreme Court judge, and eventually uh, the Ireland's Chief Justice, the, the, the most senior judge in, in the land. So obviously a very accomplished uh, lawyer. At the time, in the early 19, in, 19, in January 1972, when she and Charlie Hawhey began their relationship, she had temporarily separated from Ronan Keane. They later got back together sporadically on and off, and finally, quite a number of years ago, they, they separated definitively. Tell us about the Keane Edge. What, what was her her ultimate style of, of, of journalism. What would you read in her gossip column? Well, lots of who, who was seen where, who was doing what, uh, who had uh, ambitions. A lot of people said, a lot of people in journalism said, look, she doesn't actually write it at all. She just brings in the goods. It's actually rewritten. No big deal there. That's, that can happen on occasions in, in the journalism trade and particularly for a gossip columnist being able to gain an entree into places where the where the ones who like to be talked about and people like to read about is far more important than being able to convey stuff on the page. The affair ends, uh, as you say, in, in 1999 and they never spoke again. Yeah, I think that's pretty well established. They never uttered a word to one another ever again. She, uh, I mean, one of the first things that happened was she got a reputed 60,000 from the Sunday Times, the, the London Sunday Times, Irish edition, and she got a two-year contract at 50,000 per year to move her column from the Sunday Independent to the rival Sunday Times. And... Uh, she auctioned a lot of the memorabilia, I've, photographs and, and other uh, gifts and other things. In September 1999, she put them up for auction. Uh, poignantly, 
the day of the auction happened to be the 48th wedding anniversary of Charles uh, Charles Hawhey and, and his wife. The the problem with a, a kiss and tell, as you say, is is that once once you've told that it's it's out there and you can't put it back in the bottle. Terry Keane, she she says she kind of came to regret it, it all, and and members of her own family have spoken about this as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think she was surprised that there was, but there was of course uh, a compelling curiosity, public curiosity. But there were also strong elements of saying that it was completely wrong and that it, it reflected very badly on her. She was left trying to justify why did she do this? She actually went back on The Late Late Show, again, this time fronted by Pat Kenny uh, in 2006, just, just two years short of her death and just after the death of, of Charles Hawhey. And she said uh, that she bitterly regretted it, but that it, uh, the 1999 tell-all thing, but that it came at a very difficult time in her life. There were three very difficult things uh, happening to her. Uh, f- firstly, she had been been diagnosed with a heart complaint. Uh, secondly, she'd had investments which uh, which went badly wrong. Thirdly, she felt that Charles Hawhey was trying to... Uh, rid or get her out of his life. The other point was there was a strong rumour that a journalist was going to write a book called Sweetie and she thought she'd better get her retaliation in first and get her version of events out there. Yeah, and her her son-in-law, Dermot Gavin, later spoke about about this issue on on another gay born hosted show, The Meaning of Life. And she lived a full life. And when she went on the show, we tried to tell her not to. You didn't help. <laughs> she had done you a played de- your part. She had done a deal with the Sunday Times. She had done a uh, deal with people who she shouldn't have. There were people around her who flattered her and gave her bad advice. And she wouldn't listen to the other advice at the time. And it wasn't an easy situation for her family. I'm sure it wasn't an easy situation for her hubby. And I'm sure it wasn't an easy situation for all the rest involved, the Hawhees and or for Charlie. Ultimately, John, do we, do we look back at it now and does it join the, the, the pantheon of... of Irish love affairs, where there's a crossover with, with, with politics, Parnell and the English woman, Michael Collins and Kitty Kiernan and Maud Yates and Maud Gone, or, or where, where does this affair rest? I suppose it is in, in that bracket, in that company, and I suppose it maybe needs some reappraisal in terms of uh, it was still an era when, when women played very much second fiddle. There weren't very many women in Leinster House. Any women in government buildings were very much in secretarial tea-making roles. So I think it, it may, it, it merits reappraisal on that basis and a more feminist perspective. My thanks to John Downing for joining me today. I'm Fiona Chain, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced and researched by Siobhan Maguire with sound by Kean Sinnott. Archive clips from RT's The Late Late Show and The Meaning of Life, RT News Archive, TV3, Virgin Media News and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. <laughs>